We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Today we have arrived. The shackles are off, and finally we can talk about all three parts of demons today. This is a roller coaster of a book. You were not kidding when you were like, oh, it's going to start off slow, and then it's going to ramp up, and then it's just going to knock you to the ground. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty solid. The only question is, were there more deaths in part three, or did we murder more names trying to make this video in the process? I guess we'll find out that <laughs> that tonight. All right, let's talk about the plot. We're going to do our usual spiel of just kind of rehash what happened, make sure we're on the same page. Uh, do okay. a little bit, a little bit of convo as we go through this, and then we're going to jump into some of our discussion points. So, finally, we have the gala, and it's a <laughs> dumpster fire. <laughs> oh my gosh! Like you can see this today that this would be the season finale, maybe mid-season finale of a reality TV show where you're just like cringe the whole episode you're just like ooh, right right well even before that you've got you got liamshin and, and laputin they're they're letting in the riffraff right and we're talking about you know like oh the food and and then all of a sudden this drunk guy gets up to recite this poem that you're just like oh dude get off the stage mm-hmm. right <laughs> and then you think you're like okay we got past the worst to your point and then karmazinov gets up there and starts his hour-long speech of mercy that literally even the people in the dang book were like, wrap it up, be off the stage. <laughs> oh, it was a mercy when it ended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stepan didn't do much better. And then there's the mystery professor, too. So uh, a lot of uh, people that are there for what the food, for the entertainment, they, they obviously weren't there for the intellectualism that everybody thought we were standing for. Oh, we're also intellectual. Oh, God, these speeches suck. Get them off the stage. <laughs> I mean, but it is kind of like real life, right? I mean, if you're thinking of today, you're driving down the street, you always turn towards the accident. It just, as as humans, we look for those tragedies for some reason because it helps define our lives. And you look for the dumpster fire, right? Of like, oh, they have it way worse than me. That makes me feel better about my life. And I feel like that's what's happening at the gala here is all of these speeches, they're so terrible, but you can't turn away from them because it just gives you this sense of, well, at least I'm not that guy. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's there's the parts that they can't relate on, right? Like, like at least I'm not an hour-long Karmazinov speech, and at least I'm not this really bored materialism talk from Stepan. But Stepan did have a really good line here about what unites them, kind of. It says, do you know that mankind can live without the Englishman? It can live without Germany. It can live only too well without the Russian man. It can live without science, without bread, and it only cannot live without beauty. For then, there would be nothing at all to do in the world. I think even regardless of your worldview, that's a line that... Finding beauty in something, I think, is true in most circumstances. And and I think even even if you're a nihilist, like even if you're trying to destroy and say life is meaningless, they can still find beauty in things. It's one of the few things that really can unite mankind. Yeah, I do remember that line from the book. Do you think that obviously it's written, but if this was real, do you think Stepan kind of made that up on the fly, looking around after all those other speeches going, I, I need to end on a positive note here, and he kind of ad-libbed that to think this kind of everybody can relate to that find beauty in something, even if it's five terrible speeches. <laughs> Dude, I think Stepan had that one in the chamber for a while. He was just waiting to unload that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair and enough. Meanwhile, it's kind of like that gif, like where that guy's sitting there at the table with a coffee cup, and he's just like, this is fine. Yep, this this is going exactly as planned. everything's fine and everything's on fire and burning down around him. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just part one, right? Because up next, we got the ball. 
right? So we gotta we gotta get prepared for this, and it's kind of awful because you know the ball was pretty boring. Like for for as much as a buildup as it was, there wasn't much happening for that. Well, yeah, I mean the ball is just an excuse in order for the real plot to move forward with the murder. Well, before the murder, there's this massive firestorm that, like, you're like, oh, look outside. Isn't that pretty? Oh, my God, the city's on fire. (laughs) Yeah, the people are revolting. Oh, my gosh, Attica, Attica, or whatever that would be in Russian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then Von Lemke, like, even has, like, his wife arrested. Uh, That was kind of a shocker. But, like, you could just get the, you get a sense for the pandemonium of the time where people are just like, what the heck is happening? And it happens on a dime, too, right? Because then that's what I meant like at the beginning of the video was the not that the book is slow I mean it does feel slow at times but it just is is this tonal shift that is obviously intentional because you feel not safe or comfortable but again deep into the book here beginning of part three you're not sure where it's going and then next thing you know the town is on fire you have these boring speeches and then boom people are starting to be killed and you're just like what is going on? And that's really, I think, what a lot of Russian people felt during this time of it was so chaotic. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what the future held for themselves and their country and what it meant to be Russian or what it was going to be meant to be Russian. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's even there's even symbolism here, too, of how Von Lemke was knocked out during the, the scuffle, almost like to like never have his power again. From if he's representing the government, right? And then you have the city as you know it, the heritage all being burnt away, having to be rebuilt anew. There's a lot of symbolism in in the revolution that had yet to happen in a sense, too. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. It's beautifully written, and this is definitely the the clincher for the book as a whole. Yeah. So as the dust settles, news spreads of the murder of the Lebyadkins, as you were just mentioning, and they're made. Uh, stabbed to death, partially burned down, house on the edge of town. Very, very sudden for how that happened. We're going to get into like kind of the deaths there. But uh, we find out that that Liza, Lizaveta, she she moved out to shack up with Stavrogin a little bit earlier. And we find the two of them kind of cuddling up with each other. Uh, she she has these, she, she laments, you know, she's a, a, a ruined woman is what she says in society's eyes as she's getting ready to kind of leave this empty husk. When our boy Piotr, good old snake tongue Piotr, walks into the room, right? Mm. And that's when he starts kind of just going off about how, oh, I had nothing to do with the murders. But you should have seen Fedka. He saw this cash. He was going after the Lebiadkins. And, you know, of course, Lizaveta, being the compassionate, you know, caring person that she is, she rushes out to kind of see what, you know, what's going on. And poor, poor Mavriki, he's outside, like almost like with the boombox waiting for her. I felt so bad for this couple <laughs> at this point. Isn't that always so kind of true in, in Dostoevsky of how it it has all of these main core things? And maybe the economics of it is is a, always a core issue, but it's just that saying is follow the money. It always seems to come back to money in some regard. And I know Mm. that we're going to talk about the government and nihilism and philosophy and religion and all that good stuff. And that's here, but it just always seems that money is lingering right there on the edge just saying, I'm important too. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Almost like, well, they, they say that money becomes almost kind of a currency for, well, okay. That was a really bad example. (laughs) Uh, That was a good pun. Uh, what I meant to say was that with Dostoevsky novels, like money is elevated to a social status. It afforded you certain things that other people can't attain. And it's not like that's unique to Dostoevsky, but it's something that is consistently represented is that there are yes. things that are unobtainable without money, right? It, you know, Stevrogin, he's one of those guys that he, he can get whatever he wants. He's one of the nobles. He's one of his mom was one of the you know the richest people in town with two hundred and serfs. Like literally could either afford to knock off the Lebiadkins if he wanted to, right? Like even throwing money at Fedka earlier, or sit by and do absolutely nothing, knowing that they're about to be murdered. And you're going to be fine. Like, no one's going to come after you because of all that money. And that's what Stavrogin happens, especially when he just hooked up with Lizaveta and she goes running out to check out what's going on with the Lebiadkins, like almost like a shrine murdered in the middle of this half burned down house. 
And then the crowd goes nuts and rips her apart. Uh, like things are, are going crazy where you really get to see the, the, the social milieu is, is off the rocker when it comes to what the status is of nihilism and the, the depravity of, of morals just out the window as, as people are just being murdered and these riots and this craziness of the fires. I was shocked at all of the murders, especially some of the key characters. I was wondering, is there going to be anybody left? Is that going to be a point of the book of when you are a demon or whether you aren't a demon or recognize yourself as a demon it doesn't matter. Society's going to tear you down, and you're going to be killed. It, it is the, the amount of death and carnage at the end here is astonishing. Mm-hmm. It really mm-hmm. is. Well, and it's very subtle, but you you do have a lot of Dostoevsky redemption, right? When we talk about Flannery O'Connor, right, she's got a very specific view of what it means to receive grace and be redeemed. Same thing with Dostoevsky, right? The way that Fedka almost has like this reawakening as he runs off and is murdered, the way that, that Lizaveta shows compassion. I mean, we'll get into it, I guess, but uh, let's jump into the the posse, Piotr, because we, we do got to get through this plot to get to some of these juicy discussion points I know we're aching to talk about here. But the posse, right? We, we need to round up Shatov, but Shatov is busy finding out that he's about to be a papa bear from someone else's kid, possibly Nikolai Stavroch, and I, I wasn't 100% clear oh. But that's that's the <laughs> yeah. hint that I got. But but he's about to be this dad, and he he's gonna he's gonna do whatever it takes. Give me the best housewife or midwife uh, for my son, and and this is gonna be great. And then oh okay yeah yeah I forgot to tell you guys where that I buried that that printing press, and then I'm out right like this is cool right. <laughs> and you're just like oh my gosh, have you not been seeing what's happening in the town? Shut off like don't go. Yeah, do you think the naivety there is intentional that sometimes with money and status you just kind of lose touch with the reality? And we we talk about it later, but I, I feel like that's definitely something that maybe is kind of being hinted at here. You mean like is Shatov less in touch with reality because he's poor, so therefore he's like frivolously giving it away for frivolously. I think in the eyes of the rich, uh, for for saving a life, for saving the baby, right? Like for him, he'd give everything for that baby, but but for the rich, right. they're like, how much is it going to cost? Like, is that along those lines? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think Shatov is, he's not worried about, uh, I don't want to say the word materialism, but he's not worried about earthly setbacks like that because he's one of the few people that does care about the next generation, right? We talked about Vavara and Stepan just totally neglecting their kids. And meanwhile, Shatov will do whatever it takes to make sure that his wife, ex-wife, separated wife, and his kid, who's not even his biologically, are taken care of. And I think that Dostoevsky puts that in a higher light than having some stacks of that cash. And I think that we can get into the discussion of that in a minute here of what does that represent for Mother Russia? Yeah. All right. So so Shatov gets there and bada boom, bada bing, the posse pops out, murder Shatov, execute him. Oh, brutally. And yeah. and they start to lose it too, right? Like one of them runs off, one of them's like freaking out, and Piotr's like like holding the gun, like, hey guys, I got a gun. You're gonna need to listen to me. <laughs> They they tie Shatov up on a rock in a really awkward, poorly thought out plan of how to execute him. March, <laughs> you know, two hundred steps to dump him into this lake. I don't know who thought of this idea, Piotr. But <laughs> Piotr's like, "All right, guys, let's split up. Uh, I'll go talk to Kirillov, and we'll continue on with the suicide plan, right? Because he's going to write this letter that's going to." basically put all the heat onto him. He's going to commit suicide. We're all going to be happy, right? So he heads over there, and boy, Kirillov seems to have kind of cold feet, not per se, but more like, you don't tell me what to do. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you're you really strong in your convictions there. <laughs> well, and there was even a question of, was he going to do it at one point? But, you know, you do hear the gun go off, and and if he didn't, I'm pretty sure Piotr's gun would have gone off to take him out because Piotr gets what Piotr wants. So um, yeah, I guess I guess elsewhere we kind of jump over to Stepan, who's going on his existential journey of what am I going to do now that I'm not Vavara's like pigeon, I guess, and um, <laughs> ends up with some peasants, Sophia, 
who is very religious, starts reading the Bible, and he continues his existential journey towards Christ, essentially, right? He decides to choose religion. Mm, yeah, what does that mean? Hint, hint, come on. Yeah, you always got that in a Dostoevsky novel, right? <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. All right, so let's uh, jump back to poor Marie. Oh, this was heartbreaking. You know, she's got this newborn baby. Her, 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 her hormones are going wild. Right. She can't find her husband. Right. So she's going to be she's going to be crazy. Walks in on Kirillov. You know what I mean? Like, like how? Oh, and then she's like running around in the cold and then her and the baby, too. Like Dostoevsky, you were brutal to your characters like that line that uh, you got to kill your darlings. I think all of his characters must have been his darlings because he's taken them all out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is the Eli. Uh, Roth movie of this portion of the book it just it, it it's heartbreaking it it, it it's kind of a I mean it's enjoyable but it is a struggle to read when you're kind of picturing all these horrific things happening to quote the good people of the book so the bad guys the fivesome uh the they, the fivesome they're going through their their guilt trip right like they're they're just being bothered by it and eventually they they start to confess they're arrested and such and then we kind of have like this time skip of of 3 months later where Varvara returns home and Daria has received a letter from Nikolai. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Let's uh, let's go visit him because he's in full hermit mode again. Shocking. And when they find over there, uh, find when they find Nikolai, he's, he's hanged himself, right? So kind of a interesting end to the novel there. For part three to be so strong, it felt, and I dare say it, a little bit lackluster, uh, but that was to be expected. I, you know, it, 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 it is Dostoevsky, and I, I kind of thought that that was how it was going to go. And, and I'm okay with that, uh, you know, having that open-endedness to where what is next is very apropos, I feel like. Well, I think maybe some of that apprehensiveness might even be just from, like, confusion about the characters, you know what I mean? So, so first of all, you got to congratulate yourself for having gotten this far. That beginning, that kills a lot of people off on reading this. Hopefully you enjoyed it. So, you know, small pat on your back for, for having finished this. But let's talk about Thank some you, of sir. those complexities, right? The, the Piotr, right? I, I can't tell you, you know, reading from different forums and posts and like, you know, just reviews where people are like, I like this book. I'd recommend this book. I always see this line where they're like, I didn't get Piotr. Right. Like, like what, what was he trying to do? What was the point of this revolution? He's very enigmatic. And, and it's worth pointing out that this book, right, or, or Dostoevsky in general, I think this is his most complex book psychologically. And when you've got people like Freud, when you've got people like Einstein, right, you got uh, Zhang, who, who's never admitted to, to reading him, but man, is, is his psychology in this book. You've got some of the greatest minds in history, that are wrestling with this book, like Camus, that if you yourself walk away from this being like, huh, I kind of wonder about that character, you're not in bad company because it has challenged some of the greatest minds of all time to kind of contemplate what these characters mean. I think that was kind of the point, though, and that just goes to show how great a novel this is, but also the point of Piotr, I, I think, is to confuse you because the Russian people they themselves are confused of their identity and what do they want out of Russia? What is going to be their purpose? What is their government? What are they going to look like moving forward? They're very confused on their religious beliefs. They're very confused on the hierarchy system of their country. I think that Piotr encapsulates a lot of that perfectly. And if you take him as a representation, you're supposed to be confused and that's okay. I don't think that he is a puzzle to be unlocked and understood that chaos that change that's happening yeah. in society right good word Piotr is always in whatever we were and whatever we're going to be Piotr's right in the middle he's always an agent of that that transition of whatever we were versus what we're going to be what right we we have People who are struggling to stay relevant in terms of like, you know, Yulia von Lundke, how she got manipulated into this whole thing. And even her husband, who's kind of like a symbol of the government, the way that the government might be shifting in terms of what it is. Piotr's always there, right? And part of his sword, the way that he challenges Russia, 
is the fivesome, right? And we talked earlier about Nietzsche who who had that interesting idea of killing someone to basically make everyone follow him, like this fear, right? But it was also that promise of being a part of something bigger that we've talked about, right? Like the 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 idea of being in the movement. Like there's other fivesomes out there, right? Like like you promise there's other fivesomes. Like people like to be swept up into change and be a part of that change because then they're also kind of remembered in a sense as part of the catalyst for what made us the people that we are today. I like how that this is seen as that that mob mentality because mob mentalities are easy to manipulate and then get your own personal goals. I think the confusing part is what are those personal goals? What are they striving to work towards? And having these little tiny pockets of a resistance and smartly, I think, keeping them separated allows you to manipulate them even further because they want to be seen as the best or the most useful or helpful or impact the biggest change because we all want to leave our mark, whether it's positive or negative on this world. And I think that the, the, the group of five are able to see that if they do X, Y, and Z, then they can accomplish maybe not necessarily their goals, but somebody's goals. Exactly, right? And how many times did you see the word lackey, which had a very specific use, right? But you see it in, in all of Dostoevsky's writings, that idea of using other people's words, words that aren't yours, words that you don't understand, just to become a part of that movement or or someone else. There's actually a brilliant quote here from Shatov where it says, for little fanatics like Urkel, simply cannot understand service to an idea otherwise than by merging it with the very person who, in their understanding, expresses this idea. Right. So when we're starting to talk about these people who are pushing for liberalism, pushing for nihilism, kind of becoming these things, they're not actually their ideas. They're they're almost kind of getting swept up sometimes in these concepts. And that's a broad stroke, but I think that's Dostoevsky's positioning. I would see this as today, if if we were putting it in technological terms, these are people that hear something and pass it off as their own. So they stitch a TikTok and they they make it that these are my talking points, even though they don't understand what they're truly saying. Mm, I can see that. And what I would add to that is, is how do we look at Piotr's role in this, right? Because is it really just everybody came to this conclusion and there's lots of that, but there's also people who are instigating, people who are, like we talked about, in that border of when old becomes new, right? And when it comes to Piotr's role, you got to almost take into consideration the role of the trickster, right? Something that's as old as tales going back to the Greek era to fables of someone who came along and told the truth or someone who came along and influenced you to do things you wouldn't normally do. A very common one by today's standards would be Loki from like the Marvel universe, right? Like the mischief guy that tempted you with things that you wanted, right? Something that you may not normally do, but inside like that deepest dark part that is hidden away, you actually want. And that's the trickster's job is to pull that out, to pull out the darkest impulses of humanity and to get people to change and to take action where they normally wouldn't. And I think that's the other big takeaway from this whole novel is that leads us into Dostoevsky's uh, struggle with Russia changing from a very Christian nation into something else. And of course, we have, you know, the knowledge of what happens to Russia, but he doesn't. And that's where we get, you know, the idea of that prophetic knowledge of this book that they are moving towards something different and, and maybe quote, losing their Christianity in a sense, mm -hmm. their morality in his right. eyes, I right. think. <laughs> right. Well, and, and the trickster doesn't have to necessarily be the devil. Like it's, it's an agent of chaos and an agent of change. But to your point, Dostoevsky being so heavily rooted in, you know, these Christian values, who's the trickster of Christianity? And that's the devil. And he's not just there for change. He's there for introducing 
sin exactly to your point. To which then people become more easily manipulated if they're sinning, because if you sin once, then what's a second or a third? And that allows Piotr to uh, you know, achieve more of his goals, i.e. Russia and the mass mobs are able to be easily manipulated into new goals against the established you know, uh, uh, hierarchy. Is it from a position of sin, or is sin the enactment after you've made up your mind, right? Like, the sinning is already past the point of the decision of change, right? That's that's when you are enacting change. That's when you're burning, or from like, you know, an active nihilism standpoint, which was sweeping through Russia, you're destroying values to, what, to prove that that they don't hold meaning and such. There's There's something even before that that uh, let me read Piotr's stated goals here directly. It says to the question of why so many murders, scandals and abominations had been perpetrated. He replied with burning haste that it was all for quote, the systematic shaking of the foundations for the systematic corrupting of society and all principles in order to dishearten everyone and make a hash of everything and society being thus loosened ailing and limp, cynical and unbelieving, but with an indefinite yearning for some guiding idea and for self-preservation, to take it suddenly into their hands, raising the banner of rebellion and supported by the whole network of fivesomes, which would have been active all the while recruiting and searching for practically all the means and all the weak spots that could be seized upon. So to me, Piotr's even a step before, I guess, kind of like that, that idea of sin, that idea of let's break the foundations of Christianity. Let's change the structure of society. He is honing in on the depravity, the hopelessness, the lack of standing for something to fill somebody up with something. And when you have a lot of compliance, so if you've read like, you know, Anna Karenina and stuff like that, you get the idea of you couldn't just go against what society does because then you're shunned, you're outcast, you're no longer allowed into social events. There was a high level of compliance in Russian society, which means when there's a high level of compliance, fast forward to World War II or to Stalin's reign, stuff that hasn't happened yet, that has happened in the past for hundreds of years. You have so much compliance in a society, if you start perpetrating very negative ideas, sinful ideas exactly in the in the point of Christianity, that's when you can start creating real damage from a rebellion of destroying what is existing to build what is new. Oh, that's great. I looked at this the same way of that Piotr is making a chink in the armor, that it is allowing him to use his words as a weapon because that's all he has. And I think that that is beautiful that, that he's able to do this. And again, he, he's not evil per se, He's just doing what he thinks should make for a, a better country, for a better, maybe a little bit selfish him as a result. But it, it doesn't feel like it's a, a, a place of, you know, evil, which is unusual for kind of the bad guy, right? <laughs> well, I'll say he sure ain't good. <laughs> no, no, definitely not good. But, uh, I mean, he, he, quote, could be seen as the bad guy, you know, but... He's the trickster. He's the agent of change. He's not the one directly doing it, though he's got the gun, right? He's going to persuade <laughs> you to do it, but he he didn't do it once. Well, okay, Shatoff, <laughs> rest in peace, okay? But <laughs> for the most part, he was enacting the will of the people a lot of the times. It doesn't mean he's not complicit, but he wasn't the direct change a lot of times. I mean, he could be as complicit because he's the one doing the manipulating but I guess he's seeing himself as the hero. Oh, absolutely. Right. And, and, and that goes back to that idea of playing that role of the trickster, right. And causing change uh, to, to that point, how do you, how do you just systematically shake the foundations, right? Like, is there something you can do out there that just instantly can cause everybody's mind to change? And I think the answer to that has to be no, right? Like there's not a lot of things that you can do that causes the exact amount of change in someone that you want. You can do something that a lot of people don't like or are annoyed with, but to cause change is really hard. I, I would agree and I disagree with that. I think that causing a change in an individual is very easy. 
I think causing a change that is a quick break is easy. I think what Piotr is trying to do and Dostoevsky is trying to teach us is that change on a mass scale is not easy and is not fast, that it is a slow, gradual process. Even just how the novel was a slow, gradual process, but it is like an avalanche. It's slow to begin, but once it gets rolling, it's bam, hits you just like part three, and then you have this spontaneous change, just like we will see happen in the late 19th century of Russia. There's this quote from Kierkegaard from the present age. It says, the public is not a people, it is not a generation, it is not simultaneity, it is not a community, it is not a society, it is not an association, it's not those particular men over there, because they exist, because they are concrete and real. However, no single individual who belongs to the public has any real commitment. Sometimes during the day he belongs to the public, namely in those times in which he is nothing. In those times that he is a particular person, he does not belong to the pers- to the public. Consisting of such individuals who are individuals are nothing, the public becomes a huge something, a nothing, an abstract desert and emptiness, which is everything and nothing. And I think, so this is what I'm confused about when you said you disagree. You're going to have to clarify for me because here's what Piotr does. He doesn't just attack the general public, right? We have these subplots of the Shpulgen men who are upset about their labor contracts and about how how much the owners are making and robbing of their efforts, right? So he gets something that they specifically care about because he's targeting a specific group. When we go to the religious sphere, right, and we have the robbing of the churches and the stealing of the icons, right, stuff that is is meant to be well, it's, it's really important to, to Orthodox Christianity. Let's just say that, right? He has, he has all these little subplots that are causing unrest within specific groups. Because to that earlier point, you can't, you can't cause massive change instantly to an entire public overnight, right? To your avalanche point. You, you, you are settling unrest in all these different areas. And while Piotr's at the root of it for this novel, for the purpose of, of Dostoevsky's point, right? Imagine all this unrest happening in your country in terms of riots, in terms of, of just labor disputes and such. And you have the bad barrel that we are discussing from part two, and that's how we start to have these massive changes that kind of happen. That's how the trickster gets in to cause these revolutions. I think that's, yes, I, I think I agree with you. And maybe I explained my point poorly of thinking more like a spider web and the fisums are their own little individual pieces and that it is all coming together and connected and having one giant momentous movement as the pieces finally are connected. Mm-hmm. So let's say, let's say they break everything, right? And remember we wanted Stavrogin to be the, the leader, the symbol of, of this change and we've read at Ticones at this point. We know his super secret dirty past where he is. You're questioning whether he's remorseful. I don't I don't think he's remorseful, but I think he he, he isn't able to establish the new order that he thought he was going to. Right. On a very small scale, he was doing his version of unrest in the at Ticones chapter in terms of the women that he was messing around with and what he did with Matroshka. But he didn't get the power or that master morality atmosphere from like like what what Nietzsche would write about creating new in terms of having other people follow what your system is, as opposed to Piotr, who I think is is very similar to Stavrogin. They're both nihilistic. They're both I don't want to say psychopaths, but they both have this self-loathing, this destructive nature within them. And he does make the change into society the way that he wants. He is the ubermensch in some regards. Yeah, I guess he's just so complex, and and that's what makes him such a great character, is what is he going to do with himself? Is religion going to be his saving grace? Towards the end of the novel, it feels like it is. That's what's going to ultimately save him. And I guess I took it as that's what Dostoevsky is saying is, is, is if, if you're going to be saved, if Russia is going to be saved, 
then it, it's going to have to be through religion. If we lose that, then maybe we lose the identity of ourselves. Oh, that's totally Dostoevsky's answers. We've read enough of him. We know where he's going, right? You knew as soon as Shatov was going through that birth where he's taking care of the next generation again, what what all the characters in this novel have failed to do is to figure out, you know, what's what's going to happen next. Shatov's the one that sacrifices every earthly thing for his child because of what? Because of compassion, because of love. Like, I don't know what the app. OK, maybe I do know. Maybe, maybe is the opposite of manipulation, perhaps somewhere. So if you're being manipulated, you're not aware that's happening, but you're doing something that you don't intend is is in some universe the opposite of manipulation the word innocence and is that what shatov kind of rec- like represents in a sense but does it matter i mean from good or evil it's still manipulation right so does intent matter here well okay maybe i'm misremembering exactly when it happens but shatov if you recall st- i think he starts to pray a little bit during the birth and if I recall correctly, Arena even yeah. notices. She sees it and it inspires her, right? So from Dostoevsky's point of view, if he thinks nihilism can be contagious, if you have nothing to oh, yeah. stand for, it can be destructive. So can compassion. So can innocence and the idea of love, uh, particularly if we go to some of his other novels. Love is something that is the the action. It's the doing. And if there's an opposite of destroying, it's it's love and creation for Dostoevsky, if you ask me. And they're always in balance. Is that is that kind of my takeaway, I think, if if I feel correctly about this? <laughs> well, we don't want to spoil the other books because I have a very specific book of his that I think does a better job of diving into this and the Ubermensch. Uh, you could we could say crime and punishment deals with those themes well, right? Um, what's a good example in this novel? So if we take the fivesomes, they are possibly the closest to being irredeemable outside of the trickster, outside of Piotr, right? They're the ones that are causing this unrest, willingly trying to do that, trying to have these ridiculous meetings, like where they're putting up their hand. Did you put up your hand? No, I put up my hand. That's hilarious. No, you put up your hand. (laughs) (laughs) But, but. What's that mob mentality again? Do you recall that Fedka kind of had like a little bit of awakening before he left? We had Liamshin. Well, even before the murder happened, one of the elves, I don't know, there's too many complex names with elves. One of the elves freaked out and left. (laughs) He's like, I can't can't do this anymore. This is not a part of my program, right? I got to go because this doesn't fit into what I think is right. The others go through it, and the other L, again, these names, they're hard for me, I think it's Laputin, he starts having a lot of problems. He's starting to freak out. He, he's got to get the slap to kind of get back into order almost in a sense. And, you know, after that's done, his, his punishment is the guilt that comes upon him for the murder of their friend Shatov. And it's not until he comes clean where Dostoevsky specifically puts the words in the book where he says that he tells the truth and feels instantly relieved. Mm. It's getting rid of the guilt. It's getting rid of the dishonesty, and it's that compassion and, and entering into the the humility state that, that Dostoevsky thinks that's what is the, the counterbalance to the destructive state. Uh, I, I feel like that it's, choices that are being given like a lot of the, the characters in the book they're all be giving the choice of of do you want to be a part of this revolution yes i do i want to be part of something grander or uh i don't want to be a part of this that's what it really feels like it comes down to is it's your choice and if if you make that choice of admitting your faults and your wrongs then um you're going to have a better happier life and and we see that towards the end that Stepan is trying to do that maybe the same thing of make that better choice to make amends for his past sins and move forward uh, w- with with happiness, I guess, as is, is minimal as it may be. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I want to say on one hand, one hand, the what they're trying to do, the revolution, like, let's say I think that's the right thing to do. That's hard because you have to throw off all of the 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 collectivism of society, all the 
the weakness from from a Dostoevsky or not, um, from a Nietzsche perspective, you got to throw that off to create to set your own moral standards as as from a will to power perspective. And to me, I think that's hard. It's it's weird the way that we are uh, tuned as a society that that a lot not everyone like don't get me wrong, but a lot of times to do something wrong and then to say and to truly mean you're sorry you'll find a lot more people will accept it that that truly being sorry and again not everyone not every situation and it depends on what happens but there's there's something about and I think this would be Nietzsche's critique that there is community and cooperation that we've learned helps societies move forward that's why we moved from like these small single producing farms to people specializing in activities and producing in, you know, uh, smaller functions that allows other people to work on functions such as having a dedicated military. If you have enough people that are farming, right? This, this idea of allowing someone back in is something that is generally more advantageous from that perspective of producing the bigger communities and allowing people to focus on smaller tasks almost. When we look at communities, I think of this book in the manipulation of a collective consciousness that you have to put little seeds of doubt or remorse or whatever you want to call it into each of individual for all of it to come together and blossom and, and come to fruition. And I think that because as a society, we do work together to your point of what I always was kind of taught of that idea of a social contract, that this is way society will behave if we all do X, Y, Z. And this novel is showing how easily the social contract can be manipulated to people that are the have-nots or people that are, uh, uh, you know, seen as lesser than or inferior or or in envy of those of the higher status. And in in Russia, we saw that hierarchy and we saw how money, uh, to your point earlier, was used as this, you know, lording over people. And and I just feel like the whole book has kind of wrapped it up together of this is what can happen to a society when you aren't moving towards uh, a common goal, when you aren't working together and, uh, to Dostoevsky's point, it it kind of comes to fruition. It is very, you know, uh, prophetic that this is kind of what happens to Russia over the next 30, 40, 50 years. Did you just casually drop some Thomas Hobbes Leviathan information on me? Oh, yeah, I did. I, I didn't know you read that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I think that Hobbes here would have, uh, you know, in a way kind of agreed with Dostoevsky's fear of how society can be so easily manipulated and how the social contract mm. can be broken so quickly when people's fears are preyed upon. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. The idea of like you gave up certain, you gave up certain rights to join a group. Right. And and that's, that's true of, of any country, right? Like if you live in a country and you become a citizen of that country, well, even just being in that country, you are bound by the laws. You are bound by certain things, right? So when that changes, you know, mm, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point to have brought that up. Um, let's let's move on because there's still so much to talk about, and the night is young here, friend. <laughs> we've got <laughs> we've got to talk about death because I think we I think we skip over too much when we do our Dostoevsky talks about what is what does this death mean? What's the purpose of it? Because you know, I think it's easy for for the materialism view, right? Like I'm going to die. My body's going to turn into atoms. We're going to replenish the earth. Animals are going to eat me as I replenish the grass. Like like that's that's a fairly easy way to look at this. But that's not how everybody views death, right? And when you look at the the Russian population in terms of the consciousness of that, you have a lot of Christian ideas of what does salvation mean what does grace mean and what does redemption mean because i think i mean i don't think this is a stretch a lot of these characters are looking for some form of reassurance or redemption is Mm -hmm. is that is that a fair reassurance okay. okay yeah perfect word okay so 
when we look at Stepan, you brought him up a second ago, and we didn't even really dive into him, but you know, he he obviously was, I think, looking for some type of redemption. He, do you think that maybe his speech was the culmination of this in, this movement of intellectualism and and what we think is great ideas, and we'll we'll I don't want to say worship ideas because that kind of implies like this really weird modern narrative that's happening, but but he started to realize that the intellectualism isn't working for him, and he actually starts moving towards. Uh, the icons towards Christ. Uh, he has Sophia read the the Luke parable, which was also the epigraph to this novel and such, where you know Jesus drove out the the demons legion from the person into the pigs. But the most important part is that final line where the man was healed, meaning there was a chance for salvation, for redemption, in a sense. And I think that's what Stepan was going for, right? He's just like. I don't like what I stand for anymore. I don't think these intellectual ideas are working for our society. Look at the way the people are behaving. And I think he's looking for that collectivism. He's looking for that idea. And I think like Christianity is what brings that comfort and possibility of redemption to him. You buy a red car, you see a red car. He did these bad things. So all he's seeing is the bad things in people. And he needs reassurances of himself and everybody else moving forward. And because his intellect has failed him, he needs to find an alternative. He needs to find something to reassure him, as you said. And it could have been anything, I think. And that's what I think is such a, why he's such a great character is because a lot of us can probably relate to that uh, as we move through our lives questioning our own uh, existence, questioning our own belief systems, having faith, losing faith, regaining faith. That's something that a lot of people have as you go through your 20s, 30s, and you become middle age or, you know, whatever age he may be, as you're navigating a very complex society, not only your own internal problems and issues, but also those external as well as you are with the other peoples of your collective country and consciousness and everything together. If he's the guy that sees nothing but the negative is, you know, when we're talking about these balances and different views, is the opposite Shatoff? Like, did you get an idea that he was the one that sees the positive? And he's he's kind of like the lamb to me, the way that he just, in, just he's innocently walking into the slaughter. I mean, that's kind of needed, right? You always need a, somebody to be the sacrifice. Yeah. Well, there's <laughs> I mean, people, that, that's there, pretty typical. <laughs> well, there's people that want to be the sacrifice. The martyr, very common oh, sure. icon for Christianity. You have uh, perhaps even... I'm trying to throw out, do I throw out Lizaveta, who clearly, she's got compassion. I think she did care about the Lebiadkins. And so she goes out there and, you know, she gets ripped apart by the amoral society, nihilistic society that's just going through a craze of rebellion, right? Or maybe not so much them, but maybe the Lebiadkins, right? Like the captain almost has this re- redemption that he's looking for. And Maria, the the fool that never really did anything wrong specifically, and they were sacrificed to be a symbol for the revolution. The idea that this is meaningless. If you believe in nihilism, this is meaningless. And by the death of the symbol of the martyr, the death of the person who has done nothing wrong, that it can create and spark the change that we intend. Oof. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's... That's the crux of the whole novel. I think that's what it comes down to is is change. What's going to make that change? Who's going to make that change? And ultimately, why and how are they going to make that change? Mm-hmm. So have you ever... So if you're just going to drop Hobbes on me, let me drop some Camus on you. <laughs> have you ever read Albert Camus? <laughs> no, I have not. Okay. So Kirillov, like the character, totally not... Dostoevsky mindset, right? Like so unique to this novel. Like this this guy that's just like, I'm going to kill myself. Uh, why would you do that? My will. <laughs> like he's kind of out there. Maybe before I jump into some of the philosophy behind Kirillov, what did you? What's your take on this guy? Because I've been I've had this one in the chamber since the first part, but I knew this would be the part to take it out. <laughs> <laughs> 
So is is Krilov representing free will? He he's the guy that you're allowed to make your own choices. He's the representation that there is no predestination. That uh, you you can make a choice to turn towards religion for your salvation. Oh no 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 for no? sure not. Um, oh. Because because that means that God is real, and and okay. that that's that's the whole mm. premise is that if God is dead, and I'm not quoting Nietzsche there, but if God is dead, then I am, <laughs> I am God, is what he's saying, right? The So so Camus, if you didn't know, it's actually kind of funny. He's got this myth of Sisyphus. And, and you know what the myth of Sisyphus is from a Greek perspective, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the guy that pushes the, the rock up the hill, falls back down, has to do that for eternity, up, down, up, down, up, down, right? Left, right, left, right, B, A, B, A, select, start, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... So when it comes to absurdism, imagine that it's kind of like nihilism where we accept life is meaningless. That there's no point here. Nature doesn't have some magical design, okay? It, we're just atoms, right? But the difference is is nihilism is is almost a rejection of meaning, but it doesn't accept the fact that we search for meaning. Almost almost like pattern machines. Human beings create meaning wherever we go we create stories now what which what's a story versus what's a reality that is a totally different discussion it's the acceptance that that we try to create meaning in a universe where there is none that's that's absurdism right that these two can't match why do human beings obsess over having a purpose to their life and purpose does give value right like People will put up with a lot of crap and a lot of pain if there's a reason for it. And they'll push through, like like I've got stories about my mother, pushing through some of the hardest things in our lives. Because why? Because for family. Because that's her purpose. And what's the point of that when it's just like, well, there is no design. There is no magical reward in the absurdist view. So that's that's absurdism at a high level. Does that, does that make sense so far? Yes, sir. So the next fun part. <laughs> oh, that was, of, that was not the fun part? No, no, oh, no. I got, this, I got all cheery and rosy Here we inside. go. Ready for this one? <laughs> all right. So, so what's the solution to this? Well, this is where Kirillov really inspired Camus down the line, which is why I think this novel is, is just so brilliant. So he thought that the idea of, of self-deletion or suicide, there's two forms. There's physical version, right? Which is the version that when you hear that word, you automatically think of someone that decides to willingly end their physical body's life. And that's, that's one solution, right? That, that, that logically makes sense that if, you know, why put up with the suffering of life, you could just do this. But Camus almost, while it makes logical sense, rejects it, right? Because by ending it, that doesn't actually posit that, there's a possibility for change. It doesn't prove that there is no purpose in life. It's just a rejection of it. And also it, it, it denies the possibility to change suffering. I don't mean to jump into the changed old, the new conversation again, but it denies the opportunity to go from suffering to joy. And joy is a generally accepted good thing. So while that's like one of the solutions, it's not really a great one because it doesn't directly answer the question of what is with the point of life when it's when there is no design to the world. So I do have a question. What does this have to do with the rock hanging over his head? Explain that to me. Pretend the rock is God. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and pre pretend it hanging over you is the fear of God, right? Oh, because okay. because let's say you you take your own life the self-deletion side of things then the other part of that question because remember there's two parts one one the death would be quick if we are just atoms that's it it's over it's quick like like it, it would just end the suffering but it doesn't do anything right like it's meaningless too but if there's the afterlife well that's when all of your past decisions and all of the designs of they did matter. you follow it didn't matter right the eternal suffering side of christianity if you will. okay yeah i'm following along yeah i get you i mean i guarantee you there's whole papers written on this but think of it this way <laughs> with some people who are atheists and believe that we you know we are just atoms 
and they're looking at this idea of Christianity of like, okay, so all I got to do is follow this, this rule book that is very strict where, you know, at any given point I can have this eternal suffering and I've got a celestial super cop that can see absolutely everything that I do and everything that I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like a setup. I <laughs> That's not something I want to buy into. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess it from a certain perspective, it's uh, easy to manipulate or fool somebody as we've talked about. So, so, so let's, let's keep going down this route because, because now we got to talk about the second form. So, so reject, we're rejecting the first one. We don't think that's a really good answer because it doesn't actually answer the question. It's just not playing the game, if you will. So the second one is what he would call philosophical suicide or the, the, this solution is the idea where you, you said the word free will earlier. It's in that space but you're giving up your decisions to kind of enact a certain life that might not be your own. Like maybe a little bit of the lackiest discussion that is happening in this, in this novel. Uh, but it's almost like this mental suit, like suicide where you're taking out choice. You're taking out that opportunity and just following blindly along with, with a, a rule book for life. I mean, isn't that kind of what we do when we enter into society? Sometimes we do follow these precepts that we may not necessarily agree with but we have to to kind of fit in i mean that does happen i think on some levels right like you have to give up something from yourself hey, look look at you with your social contract you just want to bring that up again don't you <laughs> no 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 <laughs> <laughs> well um okay here's here's a very timely and relevant to this novel do you remember the speech when they're talking about that oh why do i got to bring up a word i can't say that shigailovism that, that, that character that was talking about the utopia where there are no slaves, we're all equal. Sounds a lot like communism. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds nice. Give me more of that. Right. <laughs> Tell me more. Right. But, but it's that same idea of giving up, giving up everything for the purpose of, of equality, giving up everything for the purpose of community, this, this utopian society. It's, it's, it's just another form of, of the the philosophical suicide of of intellectually giving up everything just to believe that we're the same to to follow this root path. I'm I'm probably not doing the best description of it, but the idea if we could, you know, have that conversation is is the the numbing of 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 accepting the absurdism of life. It's like you're you're lying to yourself and saying there's a purpose and following this rule book when you know that there is no design in life like that. That's the philosophical uh, suicide version of absurdism. Like it's lying to yourself that the universe isn't just random and you're making up a purpose and actually trying to believe and follow it. I love lying to myself. <laughs> then I do I, but do I believe myself? Oh, how do you believe a lie to yourself? Well, okay. All right. All right. If you're, if you're, <laughs> if you're going to open it, we're going to start talking about Stavrogin, this final scene here, because <laughs> Stavrogin, does he truly understand himself, right? When we look at, you know, like a lot of psychology, like Carl Jung, I always say Jung, Jung, because that's the way my professor said it. Sorry, I wasn't a major. I had one professor that probably messed up my pronunciation of his name for life. <laughs> but, you know, he had that breakdown of there's, there's your... Your, your ego, your consciousness of what you're aware of. And even in this consciousness, you have the persona layer of what you present to society, right? And maybe you're, what you're presenting is because it's socially acceptable. It's the, the agreement to enter into society, mm -hmm. the way society acts, or the way my religion expects me to ask, or the way mm -hmm. I need to participate in this sporting event and the way that I have to support people. That's all part of the consciousness part, which we talk about, but we, we neglect because how do you talk about it? The unconscious layer, right? Like what's happening back here and how many times are things that are unacceptable to society, unacceptable to our family, to our loved ones, right? Like, let's say, let's say you and I are hanging out and we see, you know, a beautiful girl walk by and we make some comment about it. Are we going to make that same comment in front of our wives? No, we repress that probably, right? High level <laughs> example. But if you don't want to sleep on the couch, yes. <laughs> yeah, but but now imagine having being one of those people that has like those violent tendencies or those tendencies that could cause harm like Stavrogin. 
he perhaps represses some things, but other things he acknowledges. And it's that repression where we have, we, we put it in the shadow space is what Carl Jung would call it. And it's this repressed part of both our personal, like collective knowledge and like the, what did he call it? The collective shadow, like that, like the idea that there's an experience relevant to all of humanity that's just hidden in there that's not even part of a personal experience. And if we don't acknowledge those, it's those demons, the, 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 the tricksters in us that don't, they don't even always have to be evil, but they, they are repressed that cause us to do things where you're like, why did I do that? Like, like how many times have you done something stupid? You're like, why didn't I just call my wife or, or why didn't I just admit to doing this wrong thing? And, and we did an action, not out of our conscious brain, but because our shadows came up and took control of our body because they're being repressed. And is that because those are our deepest, darkest things that we don't want to admit? And if we don't learn how to express them in a healthy way, what Carl Jung would call individuation, is that what causes this mass psychosis? The whole point of this novel, these demons, is this what, when we go through and have these dark repressed tendencies and continue to say that we have to act a certain way and don't find healthy ways to express them, that that's how our unconscious takes control and lashes out and allows us to do irrational things, such as what happened a lot during World War II and during some of these totalitarian, I'm not saying totalitarian regimes force this, but we have seen some great crimes against humanity from people who are normally good apples they get into the bad barrel and do bad things when they're repressing a lot of these desires and not able to express them in a healthy way. And it kind of comes back to our point of society, right? That we are only doing these because society has told us or not told us of what is right or wrong or what is acceptable or unacceptable. And we create these filters on ourselves of, I won't say that, I won't do that because society says this is acceptable or not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And the, and I feel like Stavrogin, he throws away those filters for a while, and he sees the trouble that it gets himself in, and he feels guilty about these things because he realizes that sometimes society knows best and that that you're going to have those filters in place for a reason because your, your id or your ego is going to appeal to those baser instincts that might be wrong and that somebody else may have a better solution for you and then allow you to live a better, healthier life. And I guess that can can you take those demons and grapple with them in a healthy manner and live a life with or without religion? Uh, obviously, we kind of know where Dostoevsky stands on this, but I think the Stavrogin is wrestling with that of how am I going to implement that into my life and the demons that I have the demons that I may have and the demons that maybe I want or don't want to keep. And then don't you see how that ties in perfectly to what we were just talking about with the guilt of being able to say, yeah. how can I live with this? You know, even looking at back to the five Sims about how they felt better the instant that they were able to confess. What were those hidden yeah. demons inside of them that they've been repressing and going along with just to be a part of, oh, there's other fivesomes and stuff like that. They failed to be the Ubermensch. They failed to be those men that were able to create those values. <laughs> and their unconscious, their evil desires, their impulses came up. And it's not something that they yeah. could be whole by just ignoring. It's 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 that individuation process where you have to accept and do that inward search that they were not doing. And I think that's that's just the brilliance of this. Dostoevsky wrote this in in 71 before before Freud, before Carl Jung, before Albert Camus, uh, before Nietzsche to an extent too. Like 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 it's crazy how much he took from the human conscious that wasn't even like I'll say science whether you take it to the psychology route, the, the evolutionary route, like there's a lot of different ways to break that down before any of that. And he saw that in people. That's the true prophetic nature of Dostoevsky, not the fact that he knew a revolution was coming, but that he knew what drove human beings to do the evils that they do. And the evils that they don't. The last question that we have to ask oh, no. at the end of each of these I videos. Know. 
right? And, <laughs> and again, thank you for all that have stayed with us this far. Again, it might come off as begging, but we did put several months of effort into this. If you want to share our video, if you want to check out our Patreon to see if that's something that you want to consider to support us, we'd greatly appreciate it. But our content is always 100% free. We're not going to we're not going to pay gate our, our content. But I have to end our, our conversation here, my friend, with what are the demons in this book? I think I've come to the realization that the demons are in all of us. And the demons are the struggles of what to do and what not to do. And ultimately, why do you make those choices? Is it something that is an external force that is affecting your decisions? Or is it something that's an internal force guiding those decisions? And I think that's something that all of us will grapple with our entire lives. And there is no right or wrong answer. And I don't think you'll ever have a true answer because you're always going to be a different you at different stages in your life. And I think that's why this is probably your favorite of his. <laughs> I don't know, man. And, I, uh, <laughs> I, I read, I read brothers Karamazov. Like I got like that 20 years of that festering inside. I've got what yeah. I started this, what three months ago. Now I've got three months of experience <laughs> with this. I'm on a honeymoon. Give me some time to let this simmer. But absolutely. This novel is just, it's, it's, it's his best character work yet. I'm going to say it. I think psychologically, these are the deepest characters he's created. Yeah. And character evolution, right? Yeah. No, for Except sure. For maybe crime and punishment. Ugh. So many to choose from. <laughs> Check out our playlist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll be doing uh, notes from the underground. If you're interested in that coming, obviously until that happens later on this year, we've got the brothers Karamazov, the idiot, crime and punishment playlist down below. Obviously we, we appreciate you spending some time with us. We appreciate all of our friends that have read along with us. We'll put links to their channels down below. Uh, we did some great live streams to have discussions with them. This is just one of those books that I, I think we have to return to and probably do like a philosophy of, or, or maybe focus on a specific character because, because there's just so much to explore and uncover with a Dostoevsky novel. Peace. We really appreciate it. My name is Benuna. Peace.